Tonight we start in Matthew chapter 12, and Matthew chapter 12 is kind of a big chapter. It has 50-some verses, and it's one of those chapters where I could have chosen to cover the whole chapter in one night, but I would have had to move pretty fast, and it might have been a pretty long Bible study. So I've decided that we're going to study it in two halves. So tonight we're just going to cover the first half of Matthew chapter 12, But you're going to notice this theme coming up again, again and again. We've seen it for the past several chapters. It's not a theme, it's not a new theme to us as we study the Gospel of Matthew. This theme of the rising opposition against Jesus from the religious leaders. So let's just jump into it now. Verses 1 and 2, Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples were hungry and began to pluck grains or pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So do you have the picture in your mind? Here is Jesus and his disciples. They're walking through fields. There wouldn't be elaborate fences or walls to separate a farmer's field from a pathway that people would walk upon. There would just be a pathway in the midst of fields. And as they walk through, they would walk by and the heads of grain upon the wheat or whatever it was that was growing, rye, barley, whatever kind of grain it was, they would come and go to the heads of the grain, they would take it in their hands, they would rub it, they would blow on it to blow away the chaff, and they would pop the kernels of grain into their mouth, and it was a little snack that they could do along the way. And they did it, as it says very plainly there, right there in verse 1, because his disciples were hungry. Now, please don't get the issue wrong here. They weren't stealing. As a matter of fact, according to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, this was absolutely permitted under the law of Israel. They made provision. They told the farmer, don't take everything from your fields. Leave something at the corners. Leave something at your edges for both the person who is traveling through and then also for people that they would call gleaners, people who would come and clean up after the harvest and take the last bits of grain, the last bits of harvest that remained behind. Ruth was a famous gleaner in the book of Ruth. She went behind the harvesters of Boaz and got what they had left behind. And so, please notice this. Here they are walking along. They're hungry. And in this very simple, you might say poor fashion, right? They're not carrying food with them. They don't each one of them have, you know, like a, like a Big Mac meal from McDonald's or wherever it was, you know, along with them. They didn't pack food. They're hungry. They, they turn to the land itself and the farmer fields around them for sustenance. Now, incidentally, we learned something very interesting from this. We learned that the disciples were, in fact, somewhat poor. Right? I mean, this is the simple way that they fed themselves. We also learn that the one who fed the multitudes miraculously did not do so for his own disciples on this occasion, right? Now, later on, we're going to get to that, the famous feeding of the 5,000. We'll get to it later on in the Gospel of Matthew. But Jesus had the power miraculously to feed his disciples, right? And we almost might wonder, Jesus, why weren't you moved with compassion for the sake of your disciples to give them a proper meal at this time when they needed it? But he did not. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, Our Lord bribes no one into following him. They may be his apostles and still be hungry on the Sabbath. That was the situation here. And so what they simply did was they began to pluck the heads of grain. 
Now, this was a problem, because did you see what the Pharisees said? It's in verse 2. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now again, the issue was not theft, because this was permitted under Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25. No, the issue here was that in the eyes of the Pharisees, in the eyes of the religious leaders of Israel, these men were working on the Sabbath. You might say, well, how could simply eating be working? You have to eat on the Sabbath. Matter of fact, a nice Sabbath meal was a tradition in the Jewish community, both then and now. How could simply eating be breaking? Well, it wasn't just eating in the eyes of these ancient religious leaders. In the eyes of these religious leaders, they were guilty of at least four sins. First of all, they reaped on the harvest. That was taking the, the head of grain. They threshed on the harvest. They, they got the heads of grain out. They, they winnowed on the harvest. That is, they blew away the chaff. And they prepared food on the harvest. They popped it in their mouth. There were four violations of the Sabbath in every mouthful as far as the religious leaders were concerned. I want you to notice something. What did Jesus just get done saying at the end of Matthew chapter 11? And by the way, I think there's a deliberate reason why Matthew arranged his gospel this way. Notice it, starting at verse 28, Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And then immediately after there, Matthew puts in this story that illustrates so powerfully what a heavy burden the scribes and the Pharisees put upon the people. What a hard yoke these religious leaders put upon people. Jesus, excuse me, Matthew wants us to see the contrast between Jesus and these religious leaders. And it was a great contrast. Please understand that at this time, the rabbis filled Judaism with elaborate rituals related to the Sabbath. And, of course, the observance of other laws as well, but for some reason, especially the Sabbath. Ancient rabbis taught that on the Sabbath a man could, could not carry something in his right hand or in his left hand, but he could carry something across his chest or on his shoulder. You could carry something with the back of your hand, with your foot, with your elbow, or in your ear, your hair, in the hem of your shoe, or in the hem of your um, shirt, or in your shoe or sandal. Or on the Sabbath, you were forbidden to tie a knot. Except a woman could tie a knot in her girdle. Therefore, if a bucket of water had to be raised from a well, you couldn't tie the rope to the bucket. But you could tie a woman's girdle to the bucket and then a rope to the woman's girdle because you could make a knot in a woman's girdle. You see, these kind of elaborate rituals surrounding the Sabbath, now they were well aware that they were adding to the word of God as they did this. Matter of fact, the Jews were so superstitious about their observance of the Sabbath that in their wars in ancient times, especially with their wars with Antiochus Epiphanes and with the Romans, they thought that it was wrong for them to even militarily defend themselves on the Sabbath. And so their enemies 
the armies of Antiochus Epiphanes and the armies of the Romans, they would simply fight against them on the Sabbath and the Jews would not lift a finger to defend themselves. So that's what the religious leaders did. You saw it in verse 2. Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now let me ask you, was that a true statement or a false statement? Well, it was true if by lawful you mean the laws of man. If by lawful you mean the laws of God, then it was a false statement. Please understand, Jesus never violated God's command to observe the Sabbath. Jesus never approved of his disciples violating God's command to observe the Sabbath. But Jesus often broke man's legalistic additions to the law. And he sometimes seemed to have deliberately broken those human additions. As I play this out in my mind, you know, the movie that kind of runs in my mind as I read the Bible, I see Jesus looking over and seeing the scribes and the Pharisees over there looking at them, studying the disciples, waiting to see if they could accuse them. And Jesus almost telling his disciples, why don't you guys go out and get some grain in the fields there? Wanting to provoke these human traditions all the while, please don't turn around, all the while, Jesus never broke the Sabbath. He never broke God's law of the Sabbath. You see, even some people in Jesus' day recognized that the rules about the Sabbath were mostly human additions. One commentator named Carson quotes an ancient Jewish writing that said, the rules about the Sabbath are as mountains hanging by a hair. Because the scripture is scanty and the rules are many. So the scripture is just a hair. But upon that hair, they hung a mountain's worth of human regulations. Now one other thing I noticed before we move on to verse 3. I noticed that the Pharisees here in the first two verses, were not the Pharisees hard at work? Were they not hard at work supervising and accusing the disciples? Wouldn't you say that this was a greater violation of the Sabbath than the disciples ever did? They were breaking the Sabbath just by setting a watch over the disciples. So now, starting at verse 3, Jesus is going to defend his disciples. Let's read this. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place, there is one greater than the temple. But if you have known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, in those few verses, Jesus gives at least four reasons why the disciples were justified in doing what they did. And any one of the four reasons is reason enough. But Jesus gave four separate reasons. Let's notice what they are. First of all, he says, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? First of all, I have to say, this probably drove the Pharisees crazy when Jesus talked like this to them. 
Because when Jesus said things like them, hey, haven't you read? Oh, that would get under the skin of a Pharisee. Because if the Pharisees prided themselves on anything, they prided themselves on having a knowledge and a love for the word of God. They really believed in the word of God. They were, if you might call it this, they were a Old Testament back to the Bible movement. That's how they saw themselves. And so when Jesus would say something like this, hey, haven't you guys ever read your Bibles? And then would go on and ask a question. It must have, Jesus was kind of stirring the pot when he did this, getting them angry a little bit. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Of course, he's referring to King David. Before David was king. David was anointed to be the next king of Israel, but Saul was still the king. And this was that period when Saul had his murderous, jealous rage against David, and David had to flee for his life. And as David fled for his life, he went to the tabernacle, and when he came to the tabernacle, they had the bread that had been set before the Lord on the tables of showbread, and that bread was only to be eaten, when it was eaten at the proper time, it was only to be eaten by the priests. But David needed the bread. He and the men that he said were with him. By the way, it's an interesting thing whether or not there actually were people with David. But David said there were people with him. And David said, for me and the companions with me, we need this bread. Can you please give us it? And the priest rightly gave it to David. Now, this is in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And it shows us a very important principle. It shows us that human need is more important than observing ceremonial rituals. Now let's understand that. I'll say it again because it's such an important principle and sometimes one that we're ready to forget in the midst of our religious observance. But I'll say it again. Human need is more important than observing ceremonial rituals. Now the incident with David was a very valid defense because first of all, it involved eating, right? Bread for David, grain for the disciples. It also, very interestingly, probably happened on the Sabbath. 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 5 and 6 say that there was a particular day when they changed the bread, and it was on that day that David and his companions, if he had companions, he said he had companions, but David and his supposed companions came with them there to the tabernacle. They probably changed the bread on the Sabbath. David probably came to that tabernacle on the Sabbath day. That's the second reason why it matched. The third reason why it was good, because it concerned not only David, but his followers, or at least the followers that he said he had. And of course, this whole situation with Jesus and the Pharisees, it concerned not only Jesus and the Pharisees, but the followers of Jesus as well. Now, taking it all, the context of David's taking the bread in 1 Samuel 21 shows that it was justified for him doing it. Can you imagine some person coming up to the tabernacle and going to the high priest the way that David went to the high priest and said, hey, I'm hungry, give me some of that bread. Well, if there was no necessity for it, or if the person wanted to do it to profane the holy bread of God, or if the person was not genuinely in need, or if he was doing it just out of a joke, all of those reasons would have made it extremely sinful for the high priest to give the bread to David and for David to receive it. But you see, it was for none of those reasons. It was for absolute 
human necessity, and that's what made it valid. And that's the thing that Jesus is pointing to here. So that's the first reason. The second principle Jesus relates to is also simple. He says, notice it right here, it's at uh, verse 5, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Well, think about it. Who works on the Sabbath? The priests. Who works on Sunday? The pastor. The church staff. The priests themselves broke the Sabbath all the time. I think Jesus is just sort of shaking these guys up. Maybe these Pharisees don't understand as much about the Sabbath observance as they thought they did. The temple rituals always involved work. I think sometimes we forget how much work it was to be a priest. Do Do you know what kind of work it was to slaughter and sacrifice an animal? Let me tell you, being an Old Testament priest was a lot more like being a butcher than it was like being a holy man. It was hard work. You had to cut up big animals and lay big carcasses on big altars and arrange big fires. It was a lot of sweaty, hard work. This was the point of it. On the Sabbath, your work was doubled. The daily sacrifices that they would offer, they would offer two of them on the Sabbath. The Sabbath offerings were always doubled. And so it was more work on the Sabbath, not less. Again, He's getting at something with the Pharisees that they didn't quite understand. Now look at verse 6. He says something even more dramatic here. But I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Now you get Jesus' logic here, right? The work in the temple... The work related to the temple is okay on the Sabbath because it's for the sake of the temple. I am greater than the temple. It's okay for me to give permission for my disciples to do this work, as you would call it work on the Sabbath. Now, by the way, Jesus was indeed greater than the temple. And when he said this, it must have made the Pharisees even more angry. Because when you consider how highly the temple was regarded in the days of Jesus, this would have been a shocking statement. I don't know if I can come up with an exact, um, with an exact uh, parallel today. I don't know what to relate it to. Because the Jews loved and valued their temple. They, let me put it this way, they would swear by the temple. And for Jesus to come and say, I am greater than the temple, the jaws of every Pharisee listening to him must have dropped. How dare this man claim to be greater than the temple? But you know what? If you think about it, as the temple stood in Jesus' day, perhaps it wasn't such a shocking statement. Think about it. The temple in Jesus' day did not have the Ark of the Covenant. The temple in Jesus' day did not have the Shekinah glory. It did not have the Urim and the Thummim. It did not have the sacred fire that lit the altar in Solomon's day. Yet Jesus is all of those things to us, is he not? Jesus is the presence of God with us, like the Ark of the Covenant. Jesus is like that sacred fire, the presence of God in our midst. Jesus is the glory of God, the Shekinah in our midst. Jesus is like the Urim and Thummim giving us guidance. He is all those things to us, 
He is surely greater than the temple. Now, since Jesus is greater than the temple, I think it's fair for us to regard him so. Think of how a first century Jewish person would have thought and related to the temple. They would have admired the temple and loved it. How much more should we admire and love Jesus? He's greater than the temple. A first century Jew would joyfully visit the temple. And we should come to Jesus with even more joy. A first century Jew honored the temple as a holy place. And so we should come to Jesus and honor him even more. For a first century Jew, the temple was a place of sacrifice and service, and we should be willing to do even more for Jesus. And finally, you would say, for a first century Jew, the temple was a place of worship, and we come to Jesus and worship him because he truly is greater than the temple. Now notice, he's not done reasoning here. Verse 7, But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Again, I just want you to appreciate, with a statement like Jesus made in verse 7, that he is driving the Pharisees crazy. You know, if you would have known what it says in the Bible... To say that to men who regard themselves as absolute Bible experts really would annoy them to no end. But this reference to the passage, it's from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It shows that the Pharisees did not really understand this principle. He's using it to question their confidence in their man-made traditions. They used their traditions to lift principles like sacrifice above principles like mercy, when God wanted him to do just the opposite. I want you to think about this. Wherever there are two laws or two commands from God that seem to contradict each other, what do you do? Well, if you can't obey both of them, then your obedience is due to which one of them might be the higher law. And if a law commands mercy, or if a law commands sacrifice, that is ceremonial observance, which is the higher law? The higher law is the law commanding mercy. And so if a person is ever in a situation where to obey ceremonial command would conflict with the command to obey mercy, there is no doubt which one you should choose. But the Pharisees had forgotten this, and that's why Jesus says to them in verse 7, but if you had known what this means... Now, if this wasn't enough, that Jesus said, you know, hey, David did it, I can do it. I'm greater than the temple. You don't understand the principle of Hosea 6.6. What he says in verse 8 is an absolute bombshell. Look at it right there. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, this is the most dramatic reason. No wonder Jesus left it for the last one. It's based on who Jesus is. He is greater than the temple, and he is Lord of the Sabbath. Make no mistake about it. This was a direct claim to deity. Jesus said, I have the authority to know whether or not my disciples are breaking the law of the Sabbath. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. 
and I know whether or not my disciples are guilty of breaking it. So Pharisees, you're wrong. Now this was very strong and very persuasive of Jesus. Again, challenging their human traditions around the Sabbath. I just want to say it one more time, just so everybody has no misunderstanding about this. Jesus never broke the law of the Sabbath, never broke God's command about that. But what he did challenge repeatedly, as we're going to see as we start now in verse 9, what he did challenge repeatedly were the human traditions that had attached themselves to the laws about the Sabbath. All right, let's take a look now starting at verse 9, where we're going to have a second controversy regarding healing on the Sabbath. Now, when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him? Again, very interesting, just from verses 9 and 10 there. First of all, I want you to notice something. Jesus departs from there, and what does he do? He goes into their synagogue. Now, as I told you at the very beginning, a general theme through this section of Matthew is the rising opposition against Jesus. There's growing more and more antagonism from the religious establishment against Jesus. And sometimes this opposition is expressed against him directly. Sometimes it's expressed against Jesus through his disciples, right? Did you notice in the first account that we mentioned, verses 1 and 2 mentioned how the Pharisees spoke against the disciples of Jesus. Now, despite all that, we still see Jesus as a faithful Jewish man continued to go to synagogue normally. Let me just spell it out for you. Synagogues were not necessarily friendly places to Jesus at this time, right? He wasn't greeted with open arms because he came into great conflict with the religious leaders that would tend to congregate at a synagogue. We might say that Jesus was a faithful, church-going man even when he had reason not to be. In this, Jesus sets a tremendous public example. I want you to think about it, too. Is there any command in the Old Testament that specifically authorizes synagogue service? No. The synagogues were something that came up as a matter of the Babylonian captivity. The Jews wanted to gather. They didn't have a temple. They couldn't use that as a gathering place. So they established synagogues during the Babylonian captivity. So even though they had no specific divine authorization, yet Jesus nevertheless said, it is good, it is right for me to get together with God's people on God's appointed day. And, and by the way, let me, can I point something else out to you? Jesus never learned anything when he went to synagogue, at least as an adult, right? What did he go there and learn? Nothing. If there's anybody who ever had the right to sit in synagogue and say, well, I've heard this before. It was Jesus. Jesus could have said, well, I wrote this. I said this. I inspired this. I spoke this. Yet nevertheless, he still went to the assembly. Jesus is a tremendous example at this. Can you imagine the, the unfriendly faces that greeted Jesus at the synagogue at this point? Can you imagine all the reasons he could think of not to go to synagogue? Nevertheless, he did. 
So he goes there, and what does he see? Verse 10, And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? I want you to notice something. First of all, these Pharisees, religious leaders, whatever you want to call them, these religious leaders knew by instinct that Jesus wanted to meet the need of this man with the withered hand. Isn't that significant? It's like, here's a person with a need, and here's Jesus. It's like, whoa, Jesus is going to meet the need. Let's see what he's going to do. Everybody knew that if Jesus was in the presence of such need, the, 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 the heart of compassion that was in Jesus would be moved for him. At the very best, though, the religious leaders saw this man with the withered hand as just a test case. It's more likely that they saw the man as bait for a trap for another Sabbath controversy for Jesus. But what did Jesus do differently? He saw the man with eyes of compassion. The accusers knew that Jesus would do something when they saw this man in need. And so they asked him the question, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? In the way that Jesus replies to them shortly, Jesus exposes their hypocrisy by showing their greater concern for the things that they own, their own possessions, their own livestock, rather for the man in need. Jesus is going to argue that it can't be wrong to do something good on the Sabbath. Let's take a look at it here, verse 11. Then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out. Or how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. I want to make a couple points here. First of all, Jesus is making a very, very clear point here, right? He's saying, you would do good for one of your farm animals, for a sheep on the Sabbath. How can it be wrong to do something good for this man with the withered hand? I'm going to do good on the Sabbath. That's an appropriate day for doing something good. But notice as well, Jesus is pointing out that these men valued their possessions more than they valued people. I mean, a sheep was a possession, right? Sheep was a way that you had your wealth. How rich are you? Well, I have 20 sheep. Well, I have 50 sheep. I'm richer than you are. Sheep was a way, livestock was one of the ways that a man's wealth was numbered. He's exposing the fact that these men cared more for their possessions than they cared for their people. But I also want to make another point. I'll admit I'm kind of steering away from the text just a little bit here, but please allow this. Jesus is also speaking to us about the relative value between animals and human beings. And isn't it an important biblical principle for us to come back to that there is a great difference between animal life and human life? And that we should not lift up animal life to the level of human life, nor should we take down human life to the level of animal life. Now please understand, animal life is valuable. 
Matter of fact, the Old Testament is remarkable in how it commands that you have to treat your animals humanely. You have to be proper and good in the way that you treat your animals. It was against the law of God to be abusive or cruel to your animals. And so I'm not talking about being abusive or cruel or anything like that. I just think that I see in our society today an increasing blurring of the distinction between the value of animal life and the value of human life. Uh, There are people who love their pets more than they love other people. Now listen, I love pets. It's, It's fine for you to love your pet. That's okay. You just have to keep the distinction very clear in your mind. There's a difference between animal life and there's a difference between human life. There's a difference between the love you might have for an animal and the love you might have for another human being. And this is just one of the societal trends that we see in our world today, that there's a blurring of this distinction. I find it very curious. On the one hand, you find some people inappropriate lifting up the value of animal life to make it equivalent to human life. On the other hand, you have people debasing human life and bringing it down to the level of animal life. So again, I hope nobody misunderstands me. I'm not saying that animal life is bad and human life is good. I'm just saying there's a difference. And Jesus was making this exact distinction right here. So, man with the withered hand. Jesus exposes the the, the fallacy of their thinking. And what does he say to him in verse 13? And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored as whole as the other. This is very interesting. First of all, there's considerable debate among the commentators on whether or not the man was healed in order to be able to stretch out his hand. Right? Now, the the idea is whether or not the thing that withered his hand also affected his arm. There could be two different senses going on here. And to tell you the truth, I don't know if we can definitively say from the scriptures which one is correct. But, but you can imagine two different scenarios. One scenario is the man is deeply ashamed of his withered hand, right? And he hides it. He doesn't want anybody to see it. You, you, you see this from time to time. Somebody has some kind of defect, some kind of you know, uh, birthmark or uh, birth defect or something of some kind. They, they generally don't advertise it, right? If they can gracefully conceal it, they will, right? That's just human nature. It's how you, I, any one of us are. You can imagine that this man would tend to conceal his injury, conceal his withered hand. And yet Jesus says, no, I want you to put it forth. I want you to see it where everybody can see it. And he stretches it forth to Jesus and Jesus heals it. The other idea is this. And I have to say, the second idea is a little more attractive to me. Is that whatever it was... That, that, that damaged the man's hand also had affected his arm. And so essentially that when Jesus commanded him to stretch forth his hand, Jesus was asking him to do something impossible. Here's the man with the withered hand that also affects his arm. And Jesus says, stretch it forward. And the man's immediate instinct would be, Jesus, if I could stretch forward my hand to you, I wouldn't be needing this healing. Why are you asking me to do this? I mean, look, I'm afflicted. That's the whole reason I came. But yet Jesus was summoning the man to exercise faith. I, I can't do it. And Jesus says, you do it. You put forth the effort, and you can almost see it happening simultaneously, right? The man putting forth the effort of faith 
And then Jesus healing him at the same time. And the man almost being surprised as anybody that he could actually stretch forth his hand and his hand was healed. His arm was healed. That was formerly paralyzed. By the way, the idea of the withered hand there, literally in the ancient Greek, it's dry, it's shriveled up, it has no life in it. But yet as the man, by faith, would stretch it forth, Jesus would heal and God would make the difference in this man's life. I think it's very interesting. You think about it this way. The man's hand was withered. But by God's mercy, what was just fine on him? His feet were just fine. And so what did his feet do? His feet carried him to synagogue on that Sabbath where he met Jesus who healed his withered hand. He made use of what he did have. And as he made use of what he did have, he received a wonderful healing from the Lord and he stretched out his restored hand and it was a beautiful healing. I find it very interesting, don't you? That we're not told anywhere in verse 13. Let me read it to you again. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. What I want you to understand is this, is that nowhere does Jesus say a word, you are healed. Nowhere does Jesus lay his hand on the man, does he? That was a common way that Jesus healed people, right? To lay his hand upon them. He didn't do it this time. In fact, Jesus did the opposite. He didn't say, I'll lay my hand on you. He said, you reach out your hand towards me and you'll be healed. And the man was healed. And again, I think Jesus did this for a very important reason. If you notice, the healing power of Jesus was deliberately expressed in a great variety of ways, right? Sometimes he's healed with a word. Sometimes he healed just by telling somebody to do something. Sometimes he laid hand on people on one occasion, right? Remember when he spit in the dirt and he made a little mud out of it and he put it in the man's eyes and he gave some of the most unnecessary words in the gospel where he told the man, go wash your eyes out. Well, listen, if anybody rubs mud in your eyes, I don't think you have to be told to go wash your eyes out, but Jesus told him to do it and he was healed. Jesus deliberately chose a wide variety of, of what you might call instruments in the healing. Why? Well, I think for two reasons. First of all, to demonstrate that the healing power of Jesus was not magical. It wasn't in a flick of the wrist, right? Or in a certain formula of words that he said. It wasn't a formula. It wasn't magical. But secondly, he engineered how the healing came to each individual in a way that would be meaningful for that individual. It was meaningful for this man to be challenged to stretch forth his hand and receive the healing. Just as much it would be meaningful for Jesus to lay his hand upon a leper and that leper to receive healing. Now, we read the end of verse 13 and we say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, another beautiful miracle done there in the synagogue. You can just imagine people, you know, maybe clapping a little bit in the synagogue, gas going, oh, he's healed. You know, people, you could hear it. You could let the movie play in your mind. And then notice what it says in verse 14. Shocking, isn't it? Then the Pharisees went out and took counsel against him how they might destroy him. I, I hardly know what to say. Now, I've told you that there's been this increasing theme 
intensifying theme in the Gospel of Matthew of the opposition of the religious leaders against Jesus. Don't you see it rising here all to a new level right here? What was the crime of Jesus Christ? He healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. But by the way, did Jesus do any work in order to do it? Did Jesus lift up a barbell or, you know, run around the block or do something that would obviously break the Sabbath? In order, no, he healed the man. He healed the man by doing no work whatsoever. Yet nevertheless, the religious leaders hated him for it. In response to this amazing display of compassion and power and wisdom from Jesus, the, the Pharisees, in the hardness of their hearts, they did not respond with reverent worship. They did not respond with submission, but in hardened, murderous rejection. It just doesn't fit, does it? Jesus just healed a man. We have to destroy him. The two things just simply don't go together. You see, before this point, they seem to be content with jabbing at Jesus, you know, accusing him, finding fault. Hey, Jesus, who do you think you are? Hey, Jesus, you're wrong. You know, they're finding fault, they're criticizing him. But what a huge jump it is between finding fault and criticizing and opposing with words, maybe warning the crowds against him. It's a huge leap between doing all that and then saying, we are going to plot this man's death. And again, notice the context. In response to what? To two controversies over the Sabbath. I hate to say it, but doesn't it show us? Doesn't it show us how it is very possible for religious people to get grossly the wrong perspective? If you were to ask these Pharisees, if you were to interview them at the moment, wouldn't they feel entirely justified in what they were doing? They could probably give you three or four reasons that made perfect sense in their minds why Jesus must be destroyed. Luke chapter 6 records this same incident. In Luke chapter 6, verse 11, it says that the critics of Jesus were filled with rage when Jesus healed this man. So let me ask you, which was more a violation of the Sabbath? When Jesus healed this man, or when these hate-filled men plotted the murder of a godly man who had never sinned against anybody? Which one of those two was a greater violation of the Sabbath? Well, I think it's pretty plain, isn't it? It's pretty plain that these religious leaders were violating the Sabbath far worse than Jesus or any of his followers were. Verse 15. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there. I, I, I want you to notice that just that first line from verse 15. For a time, Jesus withdrew somewhat from his public ministry as the opposition rose against him. Please understand, this was not out of cowardice. But rather, this was in respect to God the Father's timing for the course and the culmination of Jesus' ministry. It, it, it had to run its course, right? There was an appointed time. 
There, there was an appointed time, for example, for Jesus to enter Jerusalem triumphantly as the Messiah. There was an appointed time for him to die on the cross. There was an appointed time for him to rise from it. It all had to be done in the Father's timing. And for things to get too heated too soon might disrupt that timing. So please, no one should think that Jesus was struggling with cowardice at this moment. Not at all. He did this purely out of respect for God the Father's timing. So again, verse 21, But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Jesus did what he could to escape the press of the crowds. But the crowds just simply followed him. They wouldn't leave him alone. It's like Jesus is trying to get away, but they won't let him. Nevertheless, Jesus was not annoyed. He didn't scream out to the crowds, Hey, can I just have a little alone time, please? No, Jesus, with great compassion, healed them all, it says. Did you see that? Very emphatically, it says it there in verse 15. And he healed them all. Now, this is one of the few references in the Gospels of Jesus healing all on a specific occasion. And I think it's important and appropriate here. Matthew wants us to know that the press of the crowd did not make Jesus impatient and it did not make him angry. He also wants us to know that the determination of this crowd to come and follow Jesus was evidence of their faith and so that they were all healed. Now as an outworking of this, notice this in verse 16. And he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen. My beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will touch. Now, This quotation from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 5, speaks of the very gentle character of the Messiah, who is the servant of Yahweh. Now, this was a common and very important designation of Jesus. He was a servant of God. Therefore, it says in verse 18, Behold my servant. Very important concept that Jesus is The servant, not just a servant. There's other people in the Bible who are called servants of God. Moses was a servant of God. Elijah was a servant of God. David was a servant of God. Paul was a servant of God. But they were not the servant. Jesus is the servant. And that's why it says here that everybody should behold, verse 18, behold my servant. Put your attention upon this great servant, of the Lord. Now Jesus, in his being a servant, is an example to us as servants, right? He shows us how we should serve, and that's a very important concept. If you want to know what it means to be a servant in the kingdom of God, look to Jesus. Nevertheless, we have to understand that that is a secondary sense in which Jesus is the servant of God. Jesus is our servant in the sense that he serves us. When he died on the cross, don't you understand what he was doing? He was serving us, was he not? 
when he ascended into heaven, and even now in heaven, as he intercedes for his people, as he prays for his people, he serves his people yet still. Jesus serves his people. Not only in what he did in the past, but he serves us every day through his constant love and care and guidance and intercession. Jesus did not stop serving when he went to heaven. Matter of fact, you could say that he serves his people all the more effectively from heaven. So please, I want you to understand this. That yes, it is true that Jesus is an example to us of service, but that's only the secondary sense. The primary sense is that he is our servant, and we should not be afraid to receive his service. Now, notice what it says here in verse 19. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. This seems to be the portion of Isaiah 42 that Matthew most had on his mind. Because notice the connection here in verse 10. And he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah. In other words, the idea in verse 19, quoting from Isaiah 42, is that Jesus was not a man full of self-promotion. Hey, everybody, look at me. I'm a genius. I'm great. The wonderful, miracle-working Jesus. You know, come and see me. Jesus wasn't like that at all. Jesus wasn't into clever marketing. Jesus wasn't into trying to build a great crowd for himself. No, in fulfillment of this, he actually worked more to quiet down expectation about him, to quiet down the, uh, the uh, fame that was his spreading all about the land. This seems to be the most important point to Matthew in quoting this particular passage. Nevertheless, we shouldn't neglect what it also says in verses 20 and 21. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. This is another reference to the gentle character of Jesus. You know, a reed is a fairly fragile plant, and if a reed is bruised, the servant will handle it so gently that he won't break it. And flax. Now again, he's not talking about so much as something that you would use to start a fire like tinder. He's more referring to a wick that would be an oil lamp. And if it doesn't flame, if it only smokes, he won't quench it. No, no, no. Instead, the servant will gently trim it, supply it with oil. He'll work with it until that smoking flax is no longer smoking, but burning the way that it should. You think of this, the gentle way that the servant handles the bruised reed and the smoking flax, and it reminds us that God does not deal roughly with our weaknesses and failures. No, just the opposite is true. He deals with them very gently. He deals with them tenderly. He helps them along until the bruised reed is strong, until the smoking flax is in full flame. Notice that. Jesus sees the value in the bruised reed. He sees the value in the smoking flax. Nobody else might see it. What would you do with the bruised reed? Well, you throw it away. There's a million reeds out there. Who needs a bruised one? Smoking flax, just get rid of it. Get another wick. Throw it away. Not Jesus. He says, no, I want to gently deal with these things and things that nobody else would value, I will tenderly take care of. And before we take a look at verse 22, let's just examine one more thing at verse 21. And in his name, the Gentiles will trust. 
Finally, this quotation from Isaiah 42 also speaks of the ultimate ministry of Jesus to the Gentiles. Now, we've heard before, just a couple weeks, we were there, when, when Jesus was commissioning his disciples to go out and preach, and the, the, he said, listen, you only go to the lost sheep of Israel, right? There was no doubt that the ministry of Jesus in the days of his earthly ministry was focused upon the lost sheep of Israel. No doubt about it. But it was never meant to be confined there. And Matthew knew it and Jesus knew it. And that's why he says, in his name, Gentiles will trust. Now, this was something surprising and perhaps even offensive to Matthew's Jewish readers, but it was obviously scriptural. This great news of salvation from the Messiah, it would go to the Gentiles as well. Well, Let's finish with just a couple more verses here. Verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind, and mute. And he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. Now again, Jesus is displaying his complete power and authority over demons. He's casting out demonic powers that the traditions and the ceremonies of that day considered impossible. I spoke of this before, but I'll bear the risk of repeating myself here. In Jesus' day, the Jews had their exorcists. They had people among the Jewish people who considered themselves exorcists and with different formulas, with different ceremonies, they would attempt to cast demons out of people. And they had a certain methodology. And one of the most common methodologies that the ancient Jews would use in their, in their exorcism was simply to say this. They would say, you need to know the name of the demon and then you have sort of a handle upon that demonic being, and then you can cast the demon out. This was their general way of, of approaching these things. Now, Jesus dealt with this man who was demon-possessed and blind and mute. And in the Jewish thinking, if a demon made a person mute, it was an especially clever and powerful demon, because it absolutely prevented you from knowing the demon's name, right? Because it made the man unable to speak. The, the Jews looked at a man who was demon-possessed and mute because of it as being a puzzle that couldn't be solved. So what does Jesus do? He comes along, bam, he solves it. The, the man's freed from this demon. Even though the demon made him blind, even though the demon made him mute. So what's the response? Verse 23. And the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now the crowds reacted with messianic expectation. It's very interesting. In the original Greek, and D.A. Carson in his commentary, he, he brings out this idea. He says that the ancient Greek has the idea here that the crowds were not sure. It's a legitimate question on the lips of the crowd. This couldn't be the son of David, could it? You see, understand, Jesus is blowing their minds. They did not expect the Messiah to do these kinds of things. They expected a Messiah who would be primarily political, a Messiah who would be primarily military. And here was a Messiah coming and expressing the power of God in humble acts of servants and one-on-one -on -one ministry to needy people. 
Now, that's not what they were expecting in a Messiah, but they couldn't deny the power of it right before their eyes. And so they're going, well, wait a minute, this isn't what we were expecting in the Messiah, the son of David, but maybe this guy's the real deal. The crowd is really coming to grips with this question. Now, that was the reaction of the crowds. Could this really be the guy? Could this really be the Messiah? But look at verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. The crowds reacted with hopeful, if not certain, perhaps uncertain, but hopeful messianic expectation. The religious leaders reacted with virtual blasphemy. This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub. He is casting out devils by the power of Satan. Now, how would Jesus answer such an accusation? Well, we'll have to wait till the next time we get together because we're going to stop right there at verse 24. You can read ahead. There's nothing wrong with reading ahead and thinking it through yourself. But we'll... In our study together, we'll pick it up here the next time we go through. But I just want to make, make the point. Look, let, let other people have this pharisaical reaction to Jesus, right? We should take the reaction of just rejoicing that he's the Messiah. There's the crowds. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the son of David? That's our reaction. Just this, this joy and trust that he really is the Messiah. Other people may criticize, but not us. For us, he's the son of David. He's the Messiah. And we take it from that, that as much as we are represented by the bruised reed, or by the smoking flax, the smoking wick, he'll deal tenderly and gently with us. Well, we see how these Sabbath controversies have stirred up the opposition against Jesus in great measure. Uh, Next time we're together, we're going to see how Jesus responds to these attacks, and it's a theme that's going to continue on here through this uh, next part of Matthew chapter 12. And then in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is going to respond with a series of parables that are going to explain more his kingdom. But just uh, remember that point, please. Remember the point that that Jesus here in his great tenderness is here to serve his people. And we want to receive that service. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that Jesus is the servant of God. And that he comes to serve his people. And Lord, with with great sense of our own unworthiness, yet with great faith we receive the service of Jesus unto us. We receive what he did for us on the cross. We receive the ministry he carries on right now on our behalf in heaven. We thank you that Jesus is your great servant, O God, our Father, and that he has come to serve his people. Thank you, Lord. We receive it by faith. And thank you for your word unto us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.